Hey everybody, this is the sermon extra on uh, Zechariah chapter 4, which was a one-off sermon this past Sunday night where we looked at how God sought to encourage Zerubbabel, the governor of the people of Jerusalem, who had recently come back from exile in Babylon, but had been discouraged from building the temple, halted building it for 18 years, and God used Zechariah and Haggai to encourage the people to restart building the temple, partly through this vision of a lampstand that is fed with an inexhaustible supply of oil directly from two olive trees. And uh, I want to look a bit more at the very end, the identity of the two branches or the two anointed ones, sons of oil, and trace some connections to Christ in the book of Zechariah, um, as well as we'll look at the book of Revelation. I hope this won't be too convoluted to follow. Um, it'll probably be easier if you uh, were part of that message. And so anyways, I'll, I hope this will be clear enough. Um, we're gonna be, I'm going to be reading quite a few scripture verses, and uh, we'll see if this can make sense to you guys. So anyways, here we go. Um, I want to start by also, uh, okay, actually let's just jump to the end of Zechariah chapter 4. Um, Zechariah has been asking this one question. We saw that the lampstand is the church, and it's being fed with the oil, which is the Holy Spirit. But he keeps wanting to know what are these olive trees, and especially the branches of the olive trees through which the oil flows into golden pipes into the lamp. He wants to know what is, in a sense, the mediator. And we said that, um, uh, well, here's, here's what uh, the scripture actually says. This is Zechariah 4, 12 to 14. What are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oils poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. This is literally the two sons of oil. And the most common interpretation of this is that the two sons of oil are Joshua, who was the high priest at this time, not the Joshua of Jericho, but uh, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, who was the high priest, and then Zerubbabel, who was the governor of the people at this time. And it is thought that these two men would be the two anointed ones because the priests and the kings or princes, they were the two offices of authority that received anointing with oil and were thought to have a special portion of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the other office that was thought to have that was the office of the prophet, although that was not officially established in Israel. That was more of an ad hoc sort of arrangement. And that's why we talk about how Jesus fulfills the offices of prophet, priest, and king, um, picking up on that anointing theme in the Old Testament. But anyways, it's thought that the high priest Joshua and the governor Zerubbabel um, function as these two anointed ones, the men who have been blessed and anointed by God to have an authoritative role in the people. Uh, Joshua as the high priest to have authority over religious and um, the life of worship, and Zerubbabel to have uh, civil authority. And that these really, these two sources of authority are two of God's means to bless his people on earth. God's people are blessed through the good leadership, the wise, um, gentle teaching and correction of their religious leaders, but they're also blessed and helped and protected through their civil leaders. And that through these two sources of blessing, um, civil society and um, the worshiping life, 
that the people would be encouraged and helped by God to rebuild the temple, uh, that these two things would come together, church and state, in a sense, working together, both led by godly men, and that through them, it's showing how God's anointing usually comes through people. That's why we have um, pastors who are ordained, and what their ordination means is that we recognize them as being set apart by God to be particular channels through which his blessings flow to his people. In a sense, they are people who have been authorized to represent God in a specific way. And that's why pastors give the, do- or give the benediction. They have a special commission by God to bless the people as a representative of God. So he's saying, um, and the interpreters that take these two sons of oil as the magistry and the ministry, or the priest and the prince, if you will, say that this represents these offices, that God's anointing comes through the priestly office and the princely office. And then ultimately, this is fulfilled in Christ, who is both a prince and a king. And this is really interesting because in the Old Testament, um, the priestly office and the princely office are always separate. The kings are not allowed to take to themselves priestly duties. God punishes Uriah for doing that severely. And priests were not allowed to have governing rule. These were very separate anointings. But in Christ, they come together who is both the prince and the king. Or sorry, he's the priest and the king. And we learn from Hebrews that Christ's priesthood is actually not of the line of Aaron, but it's of the line of Melchizedek, which is why even though Christ is in the line of Judah, he can still be a priest, though priests were usually consigned to the tribe of Levi. So Jesus is both a prince and a priest, together holding those two anointing offices, and he blesses his people in both ways. Jesus brings the blessing of the Spirit to his people by acting as a priest to be their sacrifice, to provide atonement and covering for their sin, but also as the king of the people. He um, sends forth the Holy Spirit as one who's providing for and protecting and leading his people into victory. And let, I want to see how this kind of actually pops up, and we're led to this in the book of Ezra. Uh, so, or Zechariah, sorry. Zechariah chapter 4 was an encouragement to Zerubbabel, and it pairs really well with Zechariah 3, which was an encouragement to Joshua, which we didn't look at at all. But it's very interesting. Um, I'll read a little bit from Zechariah 3. Verse 1, he showed me Joshua the high priest, okay, Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem, or who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. So if the encouragement to Zerubbabel was that they need not fear, because the Holy Spirit will empower him, will flatten the obstacles in his way, This is a different sort of encouragement to the high priest. He doesn't need courage in spite of his obstacles. He needs courage um, to confront his sins, uh, that he feels filthy. 
He's a priest, but the temple's not complete. He can't actually fulfill his ministry. He can't perform um, all the aspects of temple worship. And so he probably feels defiled with sin, probably feels dirty. They can't practice those sacrifices the way they want. But this is a reminder that though Satan accuses him, the Lord rebukes Satan and he gives a vision of Joshua clothed in pure garments that the Lord has taken away his iniquity. And this would encourage the priest to press on knowing that God has not rejected them for this impurity. And then this continues on, interestingly. Um, Verse 8, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men, are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Okay, this is a messianic prophecy. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua... On a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its description, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Okay, prophesying of the day when the iniquity of the land will be removed. Um, More immediately when the temple is completed, but especially when Christ um, performs the final sacrifice. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Um, There will be a new time of blessing and prosperity and neighbors even coming. And it's interesting that it mentions a single stone with seven eyes, because this also is what is declared to Zerubbabel. And we didn't discuss this Sunday night, but it's said of Zerubbabel, whoever's despised the day of small things, uh, this is four verse 10, shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. So both Joshua and and Zerubbabel are given a picture of seven eyes. And I'm not sure exactly how this fits in, but seven is this number of fullness and eyes are for seeing. And this is often an allusion to just God's all knowingness that all their ways are before the Lord. God is utterly watching out for them, watching them, watching to protect them in every way. And this is given on a stone to Joshua. And we're not told what it's on for Zerubbabel, but some speculate that the seven eyes are either on the plumb line that's in his hand as he's checking over the straightness of the temple, or it's on the top stone that he puts in. Anyways, I'm not too sure um, how to tie that all into everything, but I thought it's interesting that it's connected on both of those. Okay, but it's interesting that the prophecy of to Joshua... Um, references the branch. And the branch is referenced again. Well, it first comes up in Jeremiah, and he continues this theme of this identity of the Messiah as the branch in Zechariah chapter 6. This is Zechariah 6 verse 9. The word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jedidiah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Okay, so this is interesting. He's saying you need to do this symbolic thing by putting a crown on the head of the high priest, which is weird for the Old Testament because you would never have the royal office and the priestly office combining. Verse 12, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. 
Okay, this is now speaking of the future that this crowned priest, the branch, will build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jedidiah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So there is an immediate prophetic referent to the immediate building of the temple. But there's also a far off prophetic referent here to Christ the branch, the one who shall bear royal honor, who will build the temple of the Lord, the people of God. And he will rule on the throne and be a priest on the throne. Christ is the fulfillment of the priestly and princely offices as he sits on the throne and a council of peace is between them both. These two offices that were once separated can come together in Christ who alone is worthy and the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord. Christ sits and reigns and rules from Mount Zion, from the temple. Christ is not in a separate palace, but he actually rules his church from within. He sits as king in the temple of the Lord, the church. And verse 15 is beautiful in that it says, those who are far off shall come and help build the temple of the Lord. That is, Gentiles will come into this fold and join the people. This is what was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, where it says that it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. All the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we might walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This is a prophecy of the temple of God prophetically or uh, metaphorically in Jerusalem being built up in Christ, in the church, and the nations now come to it. The Gentiles are included. And this imagery is picked up in Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul is teaching how Gentiles become partakers of the church with Israel. We're told um, at the end of Ephesians chapter 2, he says, Therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens 
with the saints and members of the household of God. Okay, this is the Gentiles coming into the household of God with the Jews who were there before. And this household of God, Ephesians 2.20 tells us, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Okay, built on Christ, the priest king, the one ruling from the temple, the peoples of the nations come and join this house that's growing. And that in Christ Jesus, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Okay, the church is still growing into a holy temple in the Lord. As Peter says, it's living stones being built up. And Christ is the cornerstone, but the time for the top stone to be placed hasn't finished yet. The building of the holy temple of God, all these nations streaming to the temple is not completed yet. And in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And the whole point of this all, again, is the dwelling of the Spirit with and in the people of God. That presence filling the temple, that glory cloud that came down in Solomon's day that was so great that the people were brought to their knees at the presence of the Spirit of God. And as we said Sunday night, Pentecost has already happened. Happened. God's Spirit has come to his church but we want to experience the, the spirit in greater measure, to know it truly. So in Christ, um, all these um, offices are fulfilled in the branch as Christ, the priest king, rules in his church. And so that's what you can see in Zechariah 4 when he says these are the anointed ones, the sons of oil who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. That is in Christ, ultimately, this comes to fulfillment. And anyways, that's just one line of interpretation. And that's all the different directions you could go with it and support it. But there's also another way of interpreting this that I would bring up that I think I potentially prefer, though all the other things about the branch and the offices are true as well. And I hope this has not gotten too convoluted or confusing for you guys, because um, I might be even, uh, I'm definitely going a little bit freestyle here. But anyways... Here's the other interpretation for these two sons of oil. The two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth are thought not to represent the um, priestly and kingly offices, but the prophetic office. So it is pointed out that the Hebrew word for anointed here is not the usual word for anointed. So they're saying this should not be thought of the anointed ones, but the anointing ones, that actually the reference is not to ones anointed, but to ones who anoint. And it was the prophet's job to anoint. If you remember how Samuel the prophet anointed uh, David, the king. And if you take this view, that this refers to the prophetic office, um, that makes sense in just the thought that the Holy Spirit generally flows through the ministry of the word, which is a prophetic ministry. The prophets were basically preachers who declared the word of the Lord to people. And through the preaching and ministry of the word, the uh, spirit is um, just brought to greater fullness in the people. But there's a further point that's even stronger here, and that is the Allusion to Zechariah 4 that's given in Revelation chapter 11. So let me read the beginning of Revelation 11 here. 
Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And this is important here. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. And here is the direct allusion to Zechariah 4. Okay, think of this. Two witnesses prophesying. Um, two prophesying anointing ones. This is Revelation 11.4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their floors. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. At that end there, it's actually tying them through allusion to Moses, who as a prophet, the great prophet, saw waters turn to blood and saw plagues come. These, um, these two witnesses are symbolizing uh, just the prophetic office in the church throughout all time, how they speak the word of God like fire. And through the preaching of the word of God, um, God does great things in the earth. But he specifically calls them the two olive trees. There's a tie here, then, you can tell, to the two anointing ones, uh, which are the two branches of the olive trees that flow in to the um, candlestick. So that's where people... Uh, such as Meredith Klein, um, tie in the uh, two branches to the prophetic office. And I like this because I think it, I don't think that we ought to be seeing two different things in these two branches. The, the image is two olive trees that are not like an olive tree and a palm tree. It's two of the same thing. There's a symmetry there. And so I don't think that the referent should be a priest and a prophet. It seems like the referent ought to be one thing that's the same. And it's interesting if you imagine a small candlestick, but two large olive trees over it. Uh, two olive trees that would, in a sense, be covering it completely, almost like, and this is what Meredith Klein ties it to, the, the wings of the cherubim over the mercy seat of the ark. And totally covered um, with the word of the Lord is the way by which the spirit comes to the people, which again is fulfilled in Christ, the prophet greater than Moses, the one who truly speaks the word of the Lord, who truly breathes out the spirit. And it's only in the message of Christ, in the preaching of the gospel, that when received, the spirit comes to the people. So anyways, that's, that's a, another way that I think we could helpfully think of these two sons of oil. So anyways, that's all I have today, and um, I don't have all these things figured out. Um, prophetic literature can often be hard to decipher. And however, the one thing I do think is helpful, as we struggle with any more symbolic for parts of scripture, whether the prophetic books, whether the apocalyptic books, or even a book like the Song of Solomon, is that we don't need to be looking for the exact referent from every detail of the vision. Just like Christ's parables, um, you're not supposed to tie every element of them to something in reality, but supposed to learn from them one main point, one major point that the imagery, the metaphor is being given. 
And people fall astray when, say, whether in the book of Revelation or the prophecies of the Old Testament, they try to exactly nail down an exact specific reference for each thing and miss sort of the big picture of what God's trying to say. And the big picture that we saw in Zechariah 4 was that God was telling the people, don't be afraid of the obstacles before you. Don't be afraid of opposition because when you courageously step up to fulfill my will, my spirit is already with you in a full inexhaustible supply. And therefore you don't need more might. You don't need more power if you have my spirit. So don't despise and um, be worried about the small things of your day because my spirit can do immeasurably more than you ask or think. That's the power that's at work with us. So let's keep in mind as it can be interesting to try to parse the details. Um, we focus on the big picture that through Christ, the anointing of the spirit um, has come to the church and we're to be witnesses, to be a light set on a hill, a light powered by the Holy Spirit, because it's only in the spirit's power that we'll be able to make any real difference in this world.